This morning's scripture comes from 2 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. All right. Hi, how are we? Are we good? I'm just filled with energy and ready to roll. Um, My name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. Um, and uh, we've been in this book for a very long time, specifically both books, First and Second Peter, and we should be wrapping it up maybe in the next two, three weeks, but maybe not. Um, I meant to go a lot farther today, and I got two verses, <laughs> so that's where we are. Um, but you know, we've got a long ways to go, and, and we've got plenty of life to live. We're, we're young, most of us, um, and we've got a long, long journey ahead of us, and so uh, after this, we're going to study the book of, of Galatians. And, um, and uh, I almost opted for Revelation, but I'm going to sprinkle bits of that throughout everything that we do, because I just, I want to, but that's just such an arduous journey. It's huge and big. Anyways, um, so here we are today. We're going to study this passage, and um, I'll do a little bit of a review. But first, I'm going to pray, and we'll dive into this. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Uh, for letting us gather here. Thank you for this space to gather in. It's a blessing. Thank you for these people that you've brought here. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, for my family, for uh, this community. Um, Use us to anchor each other in you, to give each other guidance, to speak truth into each other's lives. Um, People come into a place like this bearing lots of burdens, heavy loads, lots of painful things. And so I ask that right now, for the next few minutes, that we would be free of those things, that they would not be at the front of our minds. Remove them from our minds. The, the stresses of our week, may we not focus on those. The, um, the terrifying things that are, that are coming in the, in the next week, let us not focus on those. But let us, right now, um, understand that this is all that there is, is us here with you, and let us bask in your love and in your presence and your glory and hear from you as best we can so that we can start to make this more and more of our everyday life, that as we, um, as we go through our life, that our, we would start focusing more and more on what you are doing all around us so that we can take part in it. Thank you for the gift and the pleasure and the honor that it is to stand up here and, and teach. Um, I ask that you would allow me to, to, to teach freely and from the depths of my heart and from the things that you've taught me and that I would remember and communicate clearly. Thank you for your love and your generosity to us. In your name, amen. So, um, a little bit of review. Uh, Last week, we talked about the beginning of chapter 3. He's beginning to wrap it all up. um, And he uses some language that describes um, taking that which has been buried and pulling it out and putting it back on top. And what he's talking about is um, you received the gospel, you received the message of grace, um, the encouragement of, of things being made whole again, of our healer, um, all things centered on the resurrection, um, th- the hope that this is for our lives. You hear the message of um, grace. You are accepted, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done, that, that you are accepted as you are to come to Jesus and to, to bask in his love and to be forgiven and to find new life and to flourish in this world, and to live for his, th- for his things. And the problem is we go throughout our week, 
and we hear opposing stories. We hear arguments that you're not good enough and that um, you're maybe too good and your, your pride gets in your way and, and how you need to earn the favor of other people and this is what it really looks like to live and this is, what it, this is where you'll really find happiness. And we hear all these opposing arguments and the gospel gets buried in these things. And sometimes we even make them part of the gospel. And so Peter says, I write you these letters so that we can reach in, take these things, pull them out, put them back on the top again. And over and over and over, as they get buried, we will meet, we will remind each other of the gospel in our conversations, in our, in our studies together, through the songs that we sing. We will gather and we will remind each other this is the center of all things. Um, and these people needed this because the gospel is a message of hope. At the center of the gospel is, is the message of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection message is incredibly beautiful and important and hopeful because it says that no matter how far dead, gone something is, three days buried in the grave, decomposing, rotting flesh, it can be brought back and made whole again. And so what this means for your life, for your relationships, um, for your view of yourself, for your view of other people, for your very life and your very soul, things can be fixed and made whole again. And these people needed this message because don't forget, they are living under Emperor Nero. He is hunting them down. He's killing them. He's rounding up entire families, putting them um, in, the, in the, the Colosseums for people to watch as wild dogs, lions, tigers tear these people apart, entire families. They are being um, persecuted, imprisoned, rolled in tar, strung up on poles, and lit on fire to light Nero's dinner parties. This is literally happening in these days. Um, and so they needed this message of hope. They needed to be reminded. And so we're going to look at verse 3 here. It starts off like this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. It's my favorite. The scoffers will come with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? So um, this is an ancient Hebrew way of saying that the thing that you are talking about does not actually exist. This, this sentence here, where is the promise of his coming? Um, this is basically saying, where is the evidence of this person that you trust in? He's not coming. He doesn't exist. And they go on to tell the reasons why. Now, this argument that your God does not exist is made today. It has always been made. It's in the scriptures. It's not a new idea. It's a very, very ancient idea. Um, we see in Malachi, chap- uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Malachi chapter 2, we see the, uh, the evil people asking the people in Malachi's day, where is the God of justice? In Psalm 42, we see, where is your God? Um, in Jeremiah 17, where is the, world, the word of the Lord? Where is the word of the Lord? In other words, where is this God that you say is powerful enough to do something um, incredible and great and who is a God of love? Where is the evidence of it? Where is he? We hear this a lot. Every time something terrible happens in this world, every time there's another terrorist, terrorist attack, every time someone come, finds out they have cancer, um, this is sort of the question that goes through people's heads. Where is God? Where is he? And so I want to, to have a conversation about this today. And uh, I want to try to come at it from a different angle. Um, I want to come at it from a stance of, of relationship. Now, um, you have these people, the scoffers with their scoffing, saying, uh, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. All things are just continuing as they were. It's as if there is no God. The, the forefathers, they died, and, and, 
and the message of God to these people died with them because things just seemed to keep continuing as they were. No one's intervening. No one's taking over. Now, um, at, at the heart of all of this is the question, what is taking so long, right? I mean, this is the question we ask. What is taking so long for this whole thing to be made right? God is really powerful. What is, is taking this so long? Um, we've always heard it said, patience is a virtue. Uh, that was actually not the case in the first century. It was not a virtue. Nobody considered patience a virtuous trait, except for the Christians. They had this sense that God was working and that he was doing something and that we were working with him. And there was no sense of, of hurry in, in the ancient writers of scriptures. It's really, really interesting when you read it. It's, it's like not there. Um, as a matter of fact, um, this passage that Peter writes here that addresses the idea of God taking a long time, what's taking so long, the idea of, of um, the problem of delay, um, this is the only passage in all of scriptures that deals with the problem of, of delay, the fact that God's work seems to move very slowly. None of the other writers seem concerned with it. They are just living obediently in the sight of God, planting churches, working, holding on to hope, knowing that they are working towards something, and that someday the Christian view is that however it looks, there will come a day when the veil is removed, when the mirror is, the fog is wiped away from it, and we see God and we know him as we are known. And it's like what we talked about last week. Everything is dragged into the light. Again, there's tons of different ideas on how exactly this looks. Even in this room, tons of different ideas. But somehow, all of the things that we have done for God's glory will be used in this kingdom. They will last, count for something. All of the pain that we have suffered and gone through will be used up in, for the glory of God. Um, and all of the ways that we have missed the mark, the sin in our lives, the ways we have rebelled against God, and all those that have taken part in that, all of this will be removed. And, and God will make things whole again. And they understand this. And so the early church fathers, you don't see them writing about how long this is taking. You don't see Paul complaining about, man, this sure is. I mean, how many churches do I got to plant? Um, the idea is, no, we are going to plant these churches and we are going to take part in what God is doing. And we're in this for the long haul. And, and in the early church fathers' instance, centuries had gone by and they're still writing about, we are, we are, we are doing this. This is a hopeful thing. Now, um, this is not sort of a, a rarity either. Um, the fact that a lot of time passes without God fixing things, it doesn't seem to bother, again, all these ancient writers. And frequently throughout scriptures, there, is this va- there are these sort of vast periods of time where it seems very much like it does today, where God doesn't seem to be saying much out loud. I mean, there seems to be these moments of conversation where God speaks to these people. And by and large, there's a lot of other time, there's gaps of time where it doesn't seem that God is saying anything. I mean, if you, if you look at First uh, Samuel chapter 3, Samuel was, was somebody who was used greatly by God, and as, when he was a boy, when God first called him, um, he's, he's living in, in the temple with the priest, and it says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, and in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. In other words, it's kind of like today. It's, it's just kind of, it was rare. And I imagine people were skeptical when they said, hey, I heard from God this morning, really, because 
I didn't and nobody in my family has for generations. Um, and so they're sort of living in the same climate as we are, not so different. And throughout scriptures, what you see is people complaining about the silence of God. People even becoming angry at what God is doing and writing about this. Have you ever read the book of Lamentations? I've talked about this before. The book of Lamentations is this really angry book. Somebody's really mad at what God did and they're calling him out and they are telling him that he's wrong and railing against the situation they're in saying, God, you let this happen. What kind of God are you? And it's this angry letter. Perhaps you've felt like this before. I remember in college in about the year 99 or 2000, um, I have a cousin who passed away in a, in a car crash, uh, her and her husband. And I remember there was a moment at her funeral where sort of all the guests left and the family was there and they opened the casket and um, her husband is standing over her, her, her body and he's all beat up from the accident. And he is just yelling at God. He's saying, God, you, you did a bad thing. And so there are times when it feels like either God is withdrawn or he's against us or he's just silent, not there. And this is what the mockers are talking about. And I, you know what? I think God's okay with it. I think God's okay with you lashing out. I think he can take it. He actually took this book and put it in the Bible for you to read and say, I felt like that. And you know what? It's not just you that felt like this. Jesus himself felt like this. There's a moment on the cross where Jesus, in Matthew 27, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, um, there's, there's a few things going on here. Um, first off, Jesus feels absent of God's presence. He prayed for something to happen. He wanted something to happen. He wanted God to intervene, and, and God didn't. He wanted a different outcome, and, and this is what he was left with. Suffering and dying on the cross. And at the same time, he's letting sort of the people hear the words of him and his pain. And also he is quoting um, the psalmist. In Psalm 22, we see exactly what he is quoting. He's looking back and saying, I I know what this is like. Jesus is familiar with everything you've gone through. Um, The psalmist writes this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Um, oh, he's very familiar with maybe your experience. However angry you are, God, however much you feel God is, is just silent and not speaking and you want to hear his voice, he, he understands. We don't serve a God that is far off. We serve a God that is intimate, intimately like he un- fully understands what you're going through. I think that's really important. A suffering savior is a big deal. And so you have these scoffers and you can hear the argument. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Um, The argument is, you know, people live, people die, and nobody intervenes. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning until now. Where is God? If God is so powerful, why is he not intervening? We are being killed And he does nothing. And they were. They were being hunted down and killed. And so the scoffers are scoffing. And uh, so the question is, how do we interact with and trust in and have faith in a God who isn't orchestrating every aspect of our lives to keep us from pain? And that is ultimately the question. As juvenile as it sounds, 
How are we to interact with a God who doesn't interact with every aspect of our life and keep us from ever feeling anything painful? Why doesn't he just do that? Wouldn't we be happier? How are we to think of this God? And, and here's the thing. This is what the Bible sets out to answer. The entire library of scriptures, this is what it's about. How is God revealed to us? How are we to understand him? Who is God? What does he want from us? What are we doing here? And how do we interact with this God that seems very mysterious to us? Um, and I think in order to answer this question, in order to see the big answer in scriptures, we have to go back to the very beginning and we have to contemplate Israel's big theological innovation. And I say that because in these ancient times, um, there were contemporaries of the Israelites who had all kinds of stories about all kinds of gods. There were creation stories, seven-day creation stories, nine-day creation stories. There were flood stories. There were Tower of Babel stories. There were stories that sounded a lot like um, Cain and Abel stories. Um, there are all kinds of stories that were out there, and the Israelites tell this story, which is a game-changer, and it's innovative, and it's this argument for a God that has been revealed to them unlike anything else the world has ever seen. And the big argument is very simple. It's that there is one God and that God created the cosmos freely and independently out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Now, to us, that sounds very normal, not very innovative. Here's how they would have drawn his name. Uh, called him Yahweh. And that doesn't sound like a very innovative idea, but you have to understand that in the ancient world, we were, the ideas going around were that we were created out of strife, out of warfare. Uh, at one point, we were created by accident. One of the gods is like, oops, I created people. Um, and there's all kinds of creation stories that are, that are giving different meanings to your existence and to the cosmos at large. And it is very depressing, the views that, that the world was giving about why we were here. But the story the Israelites told was about there is one God, and he created not because he had to, not by accident, he meant to. He set out to create us out of love. Now, um, it's not that complicated. God was not forced to create out of conflict. Um, we don't exist because Titan created us from clay and then stole fire from the gods, as in the story Prometheus, which, of course, you all know. Um, Israel says that this is all, what God did is all voluntary. It's all deliberate. It's an act of love, and love is neither coerced nor required. Now, um, one of the descriptions of God in scriptures is that God is love, that everything God does is centered on this thing, love. We, being made in the image of God, um, have this capability as well. We love. We love other people. Sometimes we love things that are completely opposite of God himself. And so sometimes the best way to, to understand what God is doing is to, uh, well, first off, draw pictures. Um, and secondly... Secondly, to, to look at how love works, what this is. Now, so a single person by themselves is this autonomous creature. They speak when they want to speak. They make up their own mind. They say their own things. Um, their world, their life is fully controlled by them. And everything in their life is them. And it's nobody else. Other people come and have some say and they can listen and take some advice, but ultimately they choose whether or not they will do what they're going to do. And so then you put another person in the mix and there's two ways you can interact with this other person. 
you can either um, continue on as you were, or you can sort of pull back. See, the normal situation for the single selfish person is sort of this. It's the blue is you. Everything is, the world is yours. Your world is yours. Everyone is entering and leaving your story, okay? Um, but love is by nature self-sacrificial. To love someone else, I must limit myself. My ego must retreat. My desires to control, to talk over, to coerce, they must be pulled back into myself. And, and I must create some space for another person. This is how love works. Um... It's the only way that love works. Without space, other people don't feel loved. They feel swallowed up by you. Um, when someone doesn't love you, they interrupt you, they micromanage you, they talk over you, they talk down to you, they don't listen to your opinion. You have no opinion. Only their opinion matters. But in a relationship that is centered on love, you create space and you speak and you, have, you create silence and you can listen. Um, when we are loved, we are given a few things. We are given silence so that we can speak, so that we can make a point, so that we can start a new conversation if we'd like to. Um, we are given space so that we can think, uh, so we can think and make up our own minds. Um, we're given genuine back and forth, and, and genuine back and forth requires regularly pulling back, biting your tongue, and letting someone else have the floor. And when we limit ourselves, we allow those around us to flourish. And so, I would argue. that it's not a stretch to claim that God in the act of creation began with an act of self-limitation because at the very beginning, if all there was was God, then God had to withdraw to create something else that was not him. I would argue that at the beginning of everything, God had to withdraw his essence so that something else other than God, something in which God could enter into a relationship with, could exist. This, if you think deeply about it, sort of uh, answers some of the questions we have about the silence of God sometimes. When someone forces their love upon you and micromanages your whole life, to force love upon someone and force you to do what they want you to do, that is the opposite of love, to force yourself upon somebody. That is an act of hate and power and control. To create space, to create a space for a relationship to work, sometimes there is silence. You speak. And then you listen, and the other person speaks, and you listen, and then you speak, and there is this back and forth. So by limiting himself, God gave us room to live, to exist, to feel love, and to decide whether or not we want to reciprocate that love. The cry of, of the mocker in Peter's letters is, is the same cry that, that many people in Scripture have sometimes um, I felt this, maybe you felt this, God just seems silent. It seems like God has withdrawn. This is part of relationship, is it not? Sometimes I hold my tongue so I can listen to my wife talk. And sometimes she is silent so that I can talk. Sometimes um, an act of, of affection is given and then it stops so that the person receiving the act of, of, of affection can ponder it and decide whether or not they will reciprocate their love. And it's their choice. There is no force. And so this has also the question of why isn't God micromanaging everything? This has been the cry of, of recent modern times as well. The last hundred years in history have arguably been the most violent in human history. Um, 
with the, with the you know, inventions of science and, and the, all the progress we've made and, and um, societies based on ideals that are, that are new and different and with all the philosophy that has been written and, and, and understood and given out, all the advances that we've made, the last hundred years has been incredibly violent, the most violent, arguably, in human history. So... Um, there is uh, a lot of questions about, so what's going on? What is God doing? Now, there's a, there's a, there's a movie called God on Trial. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a movie in which a group of condemned prisoners at Auschwitz, they convene a, sort of a judicial court asking, asking the simple question, is God culpable for the Holocaust? Valid question. Any question is really valid. You can listen to it. You make a decision upon it. And this is, is one of the questions that they're setting out to answer here. And the main objective is figuring out whether or not God is culpable for it. And the film is actually based upon a play written by uh, this guy. His name is, uh, hold on, uh, Elie Weissel. And uh, he wrote um, memoirs called Night. He's a, he's a Holocaust survivor. And uh, he wrote sort of memoirs of the whole experience. And he writes at this one point that... Um, all the prisoners in the camp were brought to one place and forced to watch as the Nazis hung um, what he calls an angel-faced child in front of everyone. And they're observing this. And he says, one person cries out and says, for God's sake, where is God? And he writes, and from within me I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. He's on to something. We serve a suffering Savior a God who is intimately familiar with exactly what you're going through. He understands what it means to be withdrawn from, to receive silence, to receive a different answer than he wants. Uh, I mean, Paul describes Jesus himself um, to, in his letter to the church in Philippi. He describes it as obedience even unto death and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We, we love to, to cry out for a God of epic intervention. We want God to fly in and change things, obviously, make it a massive change and for it to be obvious for everyone to see. We want a God of, 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 of epic intervention, and we would obviously rather see the miracle that ends the suffering um, than anything else, of course. And we follow a Jesus who understands this, for Jesus, it was not about the Father intervening. And I think this is one of the most fascinating things. Jesus cries out for God to intervene, and God doesn't. And what does Jesus do? He's obedient, even unto death. I mean, scriptures say that Jesus had the power to call down lightning from heaven and, and angels to pull him off the cross, all this. And, and, and he, he didn't ask the Father to intervene. He was obedient, and he walked through it. Um, you see, for Jesus, it was not about the Father intervening at all. It was about him intervening because he loves God. And so here's one way that I think I can put this in perspective. Um, if I have a hole in my roof at home, I don't walk into the house and look at my wife and say, Honey, I love you, and I've served you all these years. I've always loved you. And so because I love you, I'm going to ask you to fix the hole in the roof. Epic intervention, right? That's what I'm going to call out for. No. I'm going to walk in the house, and because I love her, I'm going to say, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to fix the roof. Because I love you. And so there is a large segment of the population that loves to ask for God to intervene, but is not willing to intervene themselves. 
And this is huge. Um, if you're not familiar with, with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you should be. Um, he's a, a, a Holocaust-era theologian, and uh, he was a pastor who, initially, he was, he was a pastor in Germany. He fled Germany and eventually went back um, in the midst of World War II to preach out against the evils uh, that were going on there, um, to service people in his church, to work, uh, to rescue the, the Jews who were in suffering. Um, and, and eventually he actually got involved in a, in a sort of a plot to assassinate Hitler. And he, in his writings, he's just not sure if he should go along with this, if it's God's will or not. And in the end, some money was funneled through him. The plot failed, but he was arrested for the plot. He's in prison for a while. And eventually he is lynched, hanged by a piano wire um, for all to see. Now, sad ending, but in the midst of this, in prison, he is writing these letters and he is intimately familiar with the sufferings of Jesus and with the sufferings of the apostles. He himself is going through the same thing. And he is writing letters to people of encouragement about hope and about the things that God is doing. And there's this one letter um, that he wrote on July 16th of 1944. And I read this and first time I read it, I was, I was like, I, that's rough. I, I don't know. I don't know about this. And I had a hard time with it. So I thought I'd bring it here to you guys to have a hard time with me. Let's go through this together. Um, and so he actually writes to this guy, his name is um, Eberhard Bethke, and he, and he says, um, we should live in this world as if God did not exist. I was like, why would this guy write that? And if you keep reading, um, so Eberhard asks him, well, what, what should we do? He's asking for instructions, what should we do? And here's what Bonhoeffer says. God would have us know that we must live as those who manage our lives without him. The God who is with us is the God who forsakes us. Before God and with God, we live without God. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. And I've, I've been pondering this for days, trying to figure this out. And I think, I, I think I'm starting to get it. I think the idea is, very much like what Jesus was doing. I think what he's saying is, we pray for Christ to save, and then we be the Christ who saves. I mean, think about it like this. Um, Jesus, when he was here, it was God in the flesh. God had a body in this world walking among us. And then there's this event called the ascension in which the body of Christ is no longer here. And then the spirit is sent and we are told, by the way, now you are the body of Christ. So, so God has no physical body in this world except for us. And so we cry out for God to do something. And then we do something instead of just sitting and waiting. Now, oftentimes when, when I'm, I'm preaching, I get emails from people who are listening to what I'm not saying instead of what I am saying. I'm not saying God doesn't intervene ever. I'm not saying there's not these miracles. I'm just saying the way that the ancient apostles lived, the way that Jesus lived, the way that followers of Jesus like Bonhoeffer lived, was they cried out for justice, and then they lived for justice. They did the thing they were asking God to do. Oftentimes it ended in this epic fashion. Sometimes it did not. How many times has, has, ha, have you been asking God for something and then someone, a brother or sister in Christ, a member of the body, shows up and grants the thing that you've been asking for? What happened there? Well, the body of Christ did what it was supposed to do. Someone was praying and acting. And so he goes on to write about what, what 
human beings always strive for is religion for some reason. We always want to figure out, you know, the magical prayer to get God to intervene, the right sacrifice to get God to intervene. Is it a human sacrifice? Is it an animal sacrifice? What do we do? What's, is there a rain dance that I can do to make God intervene because it's really dry down here and we need food? Um, and this is how human beings have always been, always. And Bonhoeffer describes this as what we're asking for is this Latin phrase, Deus ex machina, God in the machine. If you're looking for a band name, boom. (laughs) And so this is kind of what we want. We want God in the machine. According to scriptures, he is. The body of Christ is here. The body of Christ. Christ means Messiah. We're here. And so when you're asking yourself the question, why aren't the hands of Jesus... Um, Why aren't the hands of God doing something here to relieve these people? Well, you only need to look at your hands and say, oh, that's why. When you wonder why God isn't walking, why his feet aren't walking into these places that desperately need hope and they're broken and societies are in pain, you only need to look down at your own feet and see why. And if I may make it difficult for us all, um, Instead of, instead of sitting and, and wondering and asking God, God, provide the money for this tribe in Liberia. They really need a well. Where is the money of God? Why is it not? The, all we need to do is open up our own bank accounts and take a peek at what the money of God is doing. And it's hard to write. It's hard to say. It's convicting for all of us because the fact is we're the most prosperous people that have ever lived on the face of this earth we have the ability to do incredible good. And oftentimes we're far more content to sit and point and say, because I love you, do this. I have served you my whole life. All I'm asking for is you to intervene and do this. And oftentimes you hear the question, um, if God really exists, why is there so much suffering in the world? This is us. This is the question that we ask. And I sometimes wonder if God, from his point of view, isn't asking a similar question that goes like this, If my people really do exist, why is there so much suffering in this world? (laughs) If if my people, if they really are my people, what's going on down there? And I don't claim to have lived this out at all. I don't claim any of us have lived this out. I there's very few people that I that I think we can point to in the last several hundred years and say, nailed it. Um but there it is. We, we are God's people. The only body God has in this world is us. And so we pray for intervention. We pray for it. We proclaim it. We get together and we sing it and we say it and we pray it. And then we intervene. We ask for victory and we ask for ability and wisdom. And we ask for something miraculous too. All of this is what it is. I mean, scriptures we talked about last week are a sword sharper than any two-edged sword. They are dividing bone and marrow, and it's separating everything. We can look at every part of our life and say, what part of my life has the gospel touched? What part has it not touched? There are places you may have been very successful. There's other places you have not. Um, We're going to take communion right now. So our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and gather the elements and spread around the room. Because in communion, this is the act um, of asking God to touch the parts of our life that have not been touched by the gospel. 
And so we take some bread. It's the, it's the body of Christ broken for us and we dip it in the wine. It's the blood of Christ spilled for us and we eat it and we take it down into our hearts and into our bodies. And then we say, God, there's parts of me that have not been touched by the gospel. I'm a member of the body of Christ and I may as well not be sometimes. And so we ask for God to intervene in our own hearts in a miraculous way so that we can intervene in this world in a miraculous way. The message of God is, is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you understand the message of Jesus is the hope for the world. So we're going to take communion and we're going to ask God to convict us and change us and, and, and help us to repent fully of the ways that we have failed. And every week we're going to come and we're going to remind ourselves. We're going to gather in houses and we're going to remind ourselves. We're going to have lunch together. We're going to live lives together. And when we are together, we're going to listen for the ways that we're covering up the gospel. And we're going to unbury it and put it back on the top. And we're going to say, hey, grace and peace, grace and peace. And we're going to point out the ways that we're not living out the gospel. And we're going to do this in community. And it's going to be hard and there's going to be some repenting and there's going to be some joy and some celebration. But this is how it works. And so we're going to take some time and uh, take communion with us if you're a follower of Jesus. If you need prayer, right to these doors on the left, there's a prayer room and there'll be somebody there to pray with you. Um, Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, everything you were doing in our hearts and our lives. Change us, convict us, mold us, make us what you want us to be. We love you. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.